We're going to get started. So as you've already heard, Dr. Jay Wood is leading us today. And one of the reasons, we have pretty much one guest in adult catechesis per year. And, and Jay is our guest this year. He's, he's the mastermind of this series because, as you've heard us suggest, this was a faculty seminar on the virtues that he put together that grew into this seminar for all souls and the virtues. So we've heard him quoted before, and now we get to see him in the flesh. Jay, we're so happy you're here. Thank you. All right. Well, it's wonderful to be here and to see so many friendly faces, familiar faces, and uh, um, I need for this to be distributed. Holy go. cow. I don't know if I made enough of these. Well, it was my advice that gave you the number, so it's my Well, may maybe, maybe, um, maybe husbands and wives or friends might share if there aren't enough. I'll just wait for a sec. Well, while that's being distributed, let me just say a couple of words uh, by way of introduction. Um, I, 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 first, I first sort of hit upon the thought, uh, and not even an accurate conception, but the thought of intellectual virtues one day while I was preparing for my introduction to philosophy class. We had just finished the unit on philosophy of religion with which my class began, and I think I had convinced students that philosophy was genuinely worthwhile and that it had something interesting to say about their lives. And as we moved from this unit on the philosophy of religion, we moved into a unit on epistemology, and then things went into the tank. <laughs> my, my students started reading Descartes, who wonders if he's just not living in a dream or whether he exists or things of this sort. They read about David Hume, who says they really can't have any knowledge about the world. We don't even know if nature is uniform. Kant has just cut off of them all noumenal knowledge, and they're just going, why are we reading this stuff? And I, I was reading, just before uh, going to class, the book of Proverbs. That just happened to be what I was reading at the time. And suddenly, it just struck me. It hit me. There, the, the opening book is, you know, is, is, is asking that uh, the son might be given wisdom and understanding and insight and discernment and the capacity to understand the riddles of the wise and the sayings of the wise, a kind of hermeneutical proficiency, you might say. And suddenly it snapped on me and it just, those are all traits that have to do with epistemology. These are habits of mind that it is better to have than to lack. And I just thought, ah, this is in the Bible. Now my students will have to listen to stuff about <laughs> epistemology. And I remember the, a, second key, a second key component to my beginning to move into this area was uh, I, we, I was at a party at a, another colleague's house, and my good friend Bob Roberts was there. And as it happened, Bob and I sat down on a piano bench next to each other, and I said, Bob, you know, I had this idea about intellectual virtues. And he just turned to me and he said, that's a great idea. You ought to, you ought to work on that. You ought to think that up. And so I, I started thinking about that stuff. And of course, I owe Bob just not only a tremendous debt for that little bit of encouragement, but for the encouragement that he has given me throughout my philosophical career. He could be up here giving this, giving this talk this morning just as well as I. So again, I am so grateful to you, Bob, for your friendship and your philosophical mentoring. Well, I decided that I am not going to just get up here and give a philosophy lecture. This is, after all, a Sunday morning. We're here to worship. So I thought what I would do is to try and provide two foundations for are thinking about intellectual virtues. And the first foundation that I want to explore with you this morning is a biblical foundation. I think that the Bible has a great deal to say about our intellectual lives. I mean, wouldn't it be odd if the very faculty which makes us different from all the other animals in the world, wouldn't it be odd if as the ancient Greeks said man is the rational animal. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it just be peculiar if so, if so vital a part of our human existence was something about which the Bible was utterly silent? But I don't think the Bible is utterly silent about our intellectual lives, 
nor about the traits that we ought to be cultivating as thinking beings. So what I thought I would do is just, first of all, think with you about a bunch of scripture passages that I think speak to the life of the mind, about our intellectual nature, and how it is that we should be cultivating and nurturing and developing that intellectual nature. So first, then, we're going to look at a bunch of these Bible verses. And then uh, Matt told me the thing you want to do is to leave plenty of time for discussion. So I'll see where we stand uh, after we've worked through this initial part. And if there's still time, and I don't have a watch, um, so could somebody just remind me when we're about five minutes away from needing to be? Okay, thank you, Jason. Um, given enough time, I've got a second foundation, a kind of philosophical foundation for the intellectual virtues that I can speak into. So we'll see how it goes. So I guess uh, we can just look together, uh, starting with this very, uh, uh, just a summary, I guess, of this passage from Genesis 1, that God created us in his image, intellectual beings capable of having the intellectual goods of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And that trio of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is something that we're going to see repeated throughout the whole of Scripture. And I don't think knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is just a way of saying the same thing three times or a kind of Hebrew parallelism or something like that. I think knowledge, wisdom, and understanding are actually distinct intellectual goods. And by an intellectual good, I mean something that it is better to have than to lack as a thinking being. And Genesis assured us that God created us in his image. God is a, is a rational being. God is an intellectual being. He knows the difference between truth and falsity. He has wisdom. He has understanding. And these same traits in virtue of our being made in his image, can also be ours. These traits, by the way, are attributed to the Messiah in Old Testament prophecies and in the New Testament as well. So we read from Isaiah 11, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So here again we see this wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Um, just ever so briefly, what is the difference between <laughs> wisdom, knowledge, and understanding uh, if this isn't just Hebrew parallelism? Uh, I think of knowledge as, um, as uh, a true belief about which we can give some sort of an account. And I'm not going to get into the kind of account you have to give. But it is... Uh, having a true belief for which you perhaps have some reasons or some explanation for why you think that that's a true belief. Um, wisdom, uh, wisdom classically has had two senses. It is referred to things which are supernal and heavenly and above the physical domain. So theoretical wisdom, as the Greeks thought about it, was wisdom about those things that were above physics. They were about meta physics, things above the material sense experiential world. But another understanding of wisdom, of course, and this is the one that I think pervades Holy Scripture, is practical wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom whereby we think well and reason well and understand well that we might live well. And I think the Hebrew wisdom tradition is very much concerned with this practical wisdom. So, and then understanding is a, a really interesting intellectual good that we acquire when we are able to reason synthetically, when we are able to draw multiple strands of information together into some kind of a composite whole. It's not just looking at individual trees or individual leaves, but seeing the forest in addition to the trees. So when you think about, so when you think about say, Understanding a work of music or something like that, you have to understand all the different parts and the rhythms and the tonality and the key, key signature and a whole, the, vocal, the vocal parts, if vocal parts there be, the words that are being sung. Maybe this is a mass setting that you're listening to. And in order to understand that music, you have to be able to synthetically bring together all of those elements 
so that you really understand what the music is about. So understanding is this ability to bring multiple strands of information together and to get some sort of reason making uh, out of all of that. So back to our Lord, of whom it is said in Colossians, Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So God, of course, is wise, has understanding, has knowledge. And this is also, of course, affirmed of the Son, who is God in the flesh. Now, I take it that to be a Christian, well, I mean, it's simple. I suppose the Christian life can be summed up in two words, follow Jesus. And how do we follow Jesus? Well, I need three words, be like Jesus. And, and it's throughout the, throughout the New Testament, of course, we hear repeatedly that we're to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. But of course, one of the things we've just learned about Christ is he is replete, he is full of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So Paul writes here, um, my little children, I am again in travail until Christ be formed in you. And this, as I say here, formation into Christ likeness requires the transformation of our minds. I mean, one of the things that has to happen to be transformed into the likeness of Christ is that some kind of mental, some kind of intellectual realignment and transformation has to occur. First of all, we're told there in Mark, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We cannot love God as we ought if we are not recruiting our intellectual nature, our intellectual resources in the process. And furthermore, we're told here in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If we are to have the mind of Christ, if we are to be Christ-like in our thinking, we're told we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's the difference between being conformed and transformed? Well, I mean, I take it that being conformed is what happens to cookie dough when you take a cookie cutter and go on there, and you take this sort of unrecognizable blob of dough, and it gets conformed into something recognizable, like a gingerbread man or something like that. And we're being told, do not allow the world to conform you to its mold. Do not allow the world to conform you to its wisdom, worldly wisdom, as Paul calls it. Wisdom that goes like this, you know, look out for number one, do unto others before they do unto you. He who dies with the most toys wins. Winners write history. To the winners go the spoils. I mean, you can just think of sayings like this that reflect a kind of worldly wisdom, and we're not to be conformed by that. That's the wisdom that surrounds us. We're to be transformed. Transformation is transform. The form is the substance that describes the nature, what you are. And trans means to change it, right? To change one's very nature, to be transformed I mean, that's what happens to a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly. It's that dramatic a kind of change that has to take place for those whose intellectual lives are devoted to and pledged to Christ. Because he has, he does not occupy by the, he does not live by the wisdom of the world, but by a spiritual wisdom. So put off the old nature with its practices and put on the new nature which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So <clears throat> part of being transformed is to change the very intellectual practices in which we engage. The way we think about um, so many different things, the way, well, I'll just, I'll get to that here in just a little bit. Um, Yes, and this is one of my favorite verses. Um, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're being transformed into his likeness, and a part of that likeness will, of course, include an intellectual likeness. We will become beings who, like Christ, not only yearn for, but know appropriately how to seek knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and to make those our own. We are to become little Christs. That's what the business of transformation is about. That's what the Christian life is dedicated to. But that involves a transformation of our intellectual lives, as I think these passages make plain. So, continuing on, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, writes Paul, but we have the mind of Christ. And I think that, I mean, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Well, let's think about that for just a minute. I mean, it's to have a new orientation to the world. It is to see the world and to understand it and to gain knowledge about it through Christ-like eyes that we are seeing as Christ would see and think and evaluate the world before him. So to have the mind of Christ is to grow in Christ-like spiritual wisdom. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's that trio again of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And that's part of what it is to have the mind of Christ, is to grow into that spiritual knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Thomas Akempis prayed, O Lord, grant us, O Lord, to know that which is worth knowing, to love that, which is worth loving, to praise that which pleases thee, to value that which is most precious to, to thee, and to hate whatever is evil in thy sight. Suffer us not, he says, to judge according to the senses, but to discern with true judgment between things spiritual and things temporal, and above all, to search out and to do what pleases thee. In this prayer of Thomas Akempis, he says to know that, to love that, to praise that, to value that, to hate whatever is evil in thy sight. To, to develop in all these ways is to begin to develop the mind of Christ, I think. So, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The Lord is eager to help us gain this spiritual mind, a Christ-like mind, to gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the world that befits our transformation in Christ. I like Proverbs 4.1. It's very direct. Get wisdom. Get insight. <laughs> Just go out and get you some. <laughs> If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think not only does, is having the mind of Christ, of course, to have the true knowledge and true wisdom and true understanding of our world, its condition, of ourselves, and how to make our way rightly through that world, but it also involves cultivating habits, intellectual habits that we call intellectual virtues. So to have the mind of Christ, I say, includes having the habits of mind that put us into possession of spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So we read the familiar passage from Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Set your mind on these things, as some versions have it. Habitually have the direction of your thoughts oriented toward those things. The word, if there is any excellence, the word for excellence there is the Greek arete, which is the very word that Aristotle uses for virtue. So if there is any virtue, <laughs> okay, set your mind on these things. Think about these things. Not only, not only should you think about virtues, but you should acquire the intellectual virtues by which you are able to secure the spiritual wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So we read in 2 Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So here we're told, I mean, you might have thought, gee, all I thought I needed in, in the Christian life was a life of faith. But as it turns out, that's not enough. I mean, it's crucial, it's important, it's a sine qua non of the, of, of the spiritual life. But, but Peter tells us, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to that virtue knowledge. I think, in this passage, intimately connecting virtue with gaining in knowledge so that we will become a partaker of the divine nature, so that we will become little Christs, so that Christ will be fully formed in us. This is, of course, the, the, the Orthodox and their doctrine of theosis, of divinization, refer to this. I mean, that's to become a partaker of the divine nature is to come to have the habits of mind that are Christ-like, to have these virtues of the mind which orient our lives and our thoughts and our understanding. So here, I think, is, um, is a kind of biblical argument, you might say, for uh, why it is important to cultivate these intellectual virtues, these habits of intellectual excellence by which we can cultivate, by which we can gain, I should rather say, uh, and grow in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Now, let's take a look here. Somewhere in here, I have the backside of your handout. And I will just have to find, aha, here it is. Let's look at this, uh, oh, I have this quote from Jonathan Edwards here. That's uh, worth looking at. Somewhere I have it. Ah, yes, here we go. Passing affections easily produce words, and words are cheap, and godliness is more easily feigned in words than in actions. Christian practice is a costly, laborious thing. The self-denial that is required of Christians and the narrowness of the way that leads to life does not consist in words, but in practice. Hypocrites may much more easily be brought to talk like saints than to act like saints. And the, the business of fostering virtue is something that takes time and effort, which is why Peter, in the passage there in, in uh, 2 Peter 1, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. It's going to require various kinds of disciplines that will allow you to cultivate these virtues. And of course, the church has just wonderful things to say about the kinds of disciplines that lead you to develop intellectual virtues, that grant you the power to have the mind of Christ and to see the world, its knowledge and its understanding uh, and its wisdom aright. So, and of course, these disciplines are as well known to you as to me, silence and solitude and lecto divina and fasting and worship and 
and all of the various things that uh, contribute to cultivating Christian practices. Okay, so let's take a look there at some of these intellectual virtues and alas, some of the vices. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. The, um, the intellectual virtues, as I indicate here, I think on the handout, allow us to do several things. Uh, to, first of all, acquire knowledge. I mean, that's important. <laughs> you got to go get, get wisdom, <laughs> as the Proverbs say. Just go get it. And uh, so part of what the intellectual virtues allow us to do is to acquire knowledge and wisdom and understanding, but also to maintain it. I mean, through the course of our lives, we have to sometimes modify our beliefs, correct them, enhance them, dump them. I mean, as we live through our intellectual lives, we constantly have to be revisiting some of the things we think we know and understand and maybe improve upon them or modify them in various ways. So intellectual virtues, I think, help us to maintain, you might say, um, our repertoire of beliefs and, and wisdom and understanding. But people who have knowledge and wisdom, at least Christians who have knowledge and wisdom, are eager that they not become the sole possession of the person who has them, but that they be generously shared. That is part of what we are commanded to do here. And so we're interested in how we can teach, how we can transmit, how we can communicate wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to others. And so there are intellectual virtues that help us to do, to do that. Um, intellectual generosity. There are various pedagogic virtues that I think assist us to share uh, uh, intellectual uh, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding with others. And of course, there is also the wisdom that is needed to know how to apply our knowledge and the kind of interesting things that arise. I was just reading an article about, uh, you've all heard of this CRISPR-CAS9 gene editing technique, which allows us not just to tinker with genes, but to so manipulate them that the changes are inheritable. And, and this has suddenly caused uh, a, an interesting problem about knowledge, and that is now a geneticist can, of course, you know, tinker around their genes, take a look at them, and tell you about the likelihood of your contracting some serious illness at a particular age, the likelihood of your perhaps suffering from dementia in old age. And the question now is, is this knowledge that you now want to have at age 20 or 30? Or is this knowledge better left unknown? How should we apply that knowledge? This same technique has actually now been used to take human genes and animal genes and to create chimera, as they are so-called, to create these hybrid creatures. Is that something that we ought to be doing with our knowledge? So there is wisdom uh, needed to know how to apply our knowledge. So down to the lists of virtues and vices here. Um, I mean, I can't possibly expound them, but just scan that list there. Practical wisdom, intellectual humility, about which no one has written more in the world than Bob Roberts over there. Discernment, circumspection, foresight. By the way, each and every one of these traits, I think I could give you a biblical verse that would suggest that this is a value, uh, a quality that you, ought to, that you ought to have, or that it is spoken of favorably as something that you ought to have. Dialectical proficiency. I mean, one of the requirements for being a bishop, as you read in Titus and Timothy, is not only to be able to teach, but to be able to confound those who confute sound doc doctrine, to oppose those who confute sound doctrine. So there's uh, virtues of pedagogy, you might say, that are required for church leadership. Um, introspective knowledge. I mean, we read uh, in Paul that we are to examine ourselves before we go forward for communion. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, um, examine yourself to determine how you stand in the faith. This kind of self-examination and introspective virtues are terribly important. So, and so open-mindedness, intellectual courage and caution, 
intellectual autonomy. These are just, this is a partial list of the habits of the intellect that I think we ought all to be at least aware of and seeking to, and seeking to cultivate so that we might have the mind of Christ, so that we might be more like Christ. Alas, alas, it is not always virtues which take up permanent residence in our being, but vices. And there you can see just a whole handful of them. I mean, I mean, who wants to be dogmatic and close-minded and unteachable and biased and suffer from self-deception and so forth and so on? None of these traits looked at baldly are desirable. And yet without a little constancy and a little vigilance, we can find these things kind of creeping into our lives. We, we can start deceiving ourselves about ourselves. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that maybe our spiritual life is a whole lot better than it actually is. And that self-deception works a whole, in, in, in lots of different ways. So here, I think, uh, are some of the traits that we see spoken for and against in Scripture and some of the virtues and vices of which we should be aware. Now, I'm going to stop right there and just ask, where do we stand here in terms of time? Okay. Ten minutes. Okay. Well then, <laughs> um, well, well. Let me just let me just stop first of all, and see if anything that I have said up to this point provokes a question or a comment or a concern or a criticism, a cavil, a conundrum, anything that begins with C. You may you may ask. Yes. Over here. I'll call it a concern. Okay. Absolutely, that is the greatest question. <laughs> yeah, in fact, let me finish the question for you. I rudely interrupted you. <laughs> I mean, really, each of you are probably carrying in your, in your wallets or purses or something or in your pockets a little device that gives you access to more information than any other human beings have ever had at any point in history. And we're not done yet. The time may come and come shortly when all of the information of all the libraries in all the world will be available to you on this little device, which poses a huge problem, it seems to me, and that is the problem of choice. What am I going to allow to fill the screen of my mind? We, you know, when I turn it on in the morning, what's going to be showing <laughs> at the forefront of my reflective consciousness today. To what will I treat my mind and my senses today? And this is a huge, huge issue and something that I could expound upon, in fact, will expound upon, time permitting here, but um, I mean, what we're, what we're talking about here is about how to cultivate our intellectual appetites. I mean, just as we all need food, and some food is better for us than others, and you know, some food will make us healthy and some food won't, is counterproductive that end. Some food is, you know, is fitted for the kind of work we do, the physical exertion we engage in, our male or female, our time of life, we have to think very carefully about what we ingest by way of food uh, so that we can achieve optimal health. Well, I think that's a good analog, uh, and that's exactly what your question raises. What sort of intellectual food ought we be to be feeding ourselves on a, daily, on a daily basis? And are there some criteria? Is there a way to rank order you know, the various information that's available to us? I mean, if I pose that question to you, how do you sift and sort among the things that 
that you treat your conscious mind to on a daily basis? Do you pri prioritize? Or is it just whatever happens to kind of well up strongest within you at the moment? <laughs> my mother, my mother, dear, my dear mother is, is, uh, is kind of frail and now blind and doesn't even hear so well, but she lives through audiobooks. And so I supply her constantly with audiobooks, but she doesn't want anything tragic. And she doesn't want anything serious. She says, bring me fluff. <laughs> and she says, she said to me, no lint <laughs> that hasn't even formed into fluff. I mean, and, and so she has, she has a kind of a hierarchy about the kinds of, of, of intellectual entertainment to which she is daily treating herself. And I wonder, is that the best, is that the best way? So you raise a very, very important question, and I invite any comments about it. Yes? Yes, it's very, very difficult. In fact, I'm uh, reading with my students a book by Alastair McIntyre, a pretty well-known philosopher. His book is called Dependent Rational Animals, and he says that one of the things that parents have to do is precisely what you mentioned, and that is to train our children to make good judgments about moral matters and, and various other sorts of matters, and part of that capacity to be a, an independent, rational reasoner is to look at the options that are available, well, to look at our desires and to evaluate our desires for their eligibility. Is this a desire I ought to have? I mean, if the person finds themselves and their overwhelming desire for intellectual stimulation is, comes in the form of pornography, they need to be able to evaluate that desire for its eligibility. They need to be able to ask themselves, what, with what else might I treat my conscious mind other than this that might be better for me? And that's part of what we're trying to teach children is to say, well, okay, I know you have a desire only for cookies, but can I bring you to the point where you might see it appropriate to have a desire for vegetables as well or something like this? So, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, we have to be able to see what alternative paths of action, what alternative desires might take the place of one which is less suitable and, and, and those that are more suitable. Yes, way in the back. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Paul says that it's not by the wisdom of the world that the gospel came, but by things which are foolishness to us. So there's a kind of foolishness about the idea that in order to gain your life, you must lose it. That in order to be first, you must be last. I mean, uh, you know, these things are counterintuitive to worldly wisdom. And, and from a worldly stand standpoint, our foolishness. But Paul says later on that he strives to present all persons to Christ with a mature wisdom, a true and godly wisdom. So I don't think that to be fools for Christ means, uh, uh, you know, to, to adopt worldly foolishness, but rather to embrace those things which according to a worldly standpoint look like foolishness, I guess is the way I'd think about that. Dan. Congregation of Steelworkers in Allentown, or a congregation of 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, nothing would change. I mean, if they had Bibles in their laps, nothing would change in terms of the verses that I might go through. I think that those verses are meant to speak to people in all walks of life and not just people with PhDs. And I don't think that it takes a PhD to understand that uh, there are some, at least from a Christian point of view, if I'm speaking to Christian uh, 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 blue-collar workers, let's say, um, I don't think it's too difficult a concept to help people to see that there are some truths which are more worthy to pursue than others, that some are more significant, some are more worthy, some are more relevant. And here I refer to criteria that Bob and I talked about in our, in our book on intellectual virtues. There, there, are, there are some truths that just are, uh, are trivial little factoids, like you know, how many grains of sand are there in a cubic meter of the Sahara? Who cares? I mean, you know, some little fact like this that, you know, consider trivial pursuit games with their, you know, individual little facts. I mean, there, there are some, some, some truths that are much more significant rather than just isolated little factoids, but truths which have interesting interconnections with lots of other truths. So learning about climate science, learning about the human genome, learning about theology, I mean, in these ways, these are things which have lots of interesting connections uh, to other things we know. And, it, and, and I think that is an intelligible concept. Um, there are some truths that bear more closely on human well-being than others. There are, there are some truths that are more relevant to t your time, your place, your circumstances, your vocation. Maybe sometimes the most relevant thing you need to know is where did I leave my keys, you know? Uh, maybe, you know, right now that's the most rele relevant thing you need to know. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, th I, I want to give our, I want to give the blue collar workers in Texas a lot of credit, I think, for being able to understand that. Yes. I think there's Jason. a follow up to that, which is like, what's the action item here, right? You've made one of the best pitches I've ever heard for everybody sending their kid to Wheaton College. There you go. <laughs> Is the steel worker a Christian? Is the steel worker a husband? Is the steel worker a parent? That steel worker needs knowledge and wisdom and understanding, right? So what? So what's the? So what? You know? So what? So what? So what do we do? What do they do? Or what do we do? Well, I think part of it is to start cultivating these these habits of mind, being opened to correction, being open. Uh, to receiving new information that might bear on child rearing or on how to make for a successful marriage. So I think um, being courageous uh, to look into the deep recesses of our interior life and see those things that are perhaps um, uh, unhealthy and unattractive and in need of spiritual healing. I think everybody needs that kind of uh, introspective awareness and the courage to look hard and honestly into our interior lives. Those are action items. All of those are action items and more besides. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> Joel. Um, maybe kind of along that same line, um, I think we have the scriptural um, guidance to say, God, or to understand that God created the world in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I mean, there's the statement about creation, but God created in the wisdom and knowledge. Right. So I think to Jason's question about is this a standalone? Is this something that we just accomplish as a sort of shining gem in itself? Or is it in fact part of something action, some action, some some doing, some being? Get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Which and is at, at one point, I mean scripture Scripture asks us on several occasions, examine yourselves. I mean, before you go forth for communion, lest you partake unworthily and then eat and drink sickness unto yourself. So I mean, there's a certain kind of a spiritual 
examination that needs to go on. Are you at enmity with any of your neighbors? Go square away with your neighbor before you come up to the communion table. But also, you know, when Paul says, examine yourselves to determine how you stand in Christ, I mean, that suggests to me that there's a certain kind of introspective work that we need to do. How do, how do I stand in Christ right now? You know, am I growing in the fruits of the Spirit? Am I in a spiritually dry period? I mean, these are, these are things that I think intellectual virtues help us to negotiate. I saw your hand up over there, yeah. That's a very good question. That's a very good question, and it's a question that uh, that some philosophers have actually posed to me. And you know, you, you speak of intellectual generosity and and uh, and intellectual humility, but aren't generosity and humility moral virtues? Why append to them intellectual? Um, isn't aren't these just moral virtues at work in our intellectual lives? Right. That that's the question, and I think that they. That Well, first of all, some of these virtues, for example, prudence, practical wisdom, is both a, uh, an intellectual and a moral virtue. It's an interesting hybrid. And I want to extend that same idea of maybe being a hybrid to others of these traits. I think the reason why, um, why Bob and I and the work that we've done together call them intellectual virtues is because the good that is being sought is an intellectual good. It's knowledge. Okay, it's understanding. The motivation that moves us to engage in various kinds of practices to, in, to acquire knowledge is for an intellectual good. And in, that, and in that pursuit, we are employing chiefly our intellectual powers in the pursuit of that good. So the motivation, the intellectual tools of which we make use, the goal, the final end for which we seek are all intellectual. And so it seems appropriate then, uh, as we do in the case of uh, prudence, to call these, you know, the, to, to, to identify something of, as intellectual generosity and intellectual humility, because it bears so crucially on the activity of thinking and reasoning and pursuing intellectual goods. That's its focus. I don't know, Bob, what would you say? Would you add any more to that? Sounds good to me. OK. Uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yes. Uh oh. It's going to get personal now. I am blessed beyond measure to be a part of an academic community with really smart and reflective and interesting people who, by just being around them and conversing with them, give me the opportunity to grow and to be challenged. So, I mean, for, for me, you know, to, to get the kind of stimulation that I think enhances and corrects and improves my knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to something that just is in the very you know, air I breathe, it's in what I do for a living, so I count myself among the blessed in that regard. But that doesn't mean you have to be a part of an academic community to grow in these ways. And you'll notice here that, that um, the, whole, the, whole, the greater part of this lesson here was just reflecting on scripture and a general argument that could be made from scripture about the importance of the life of the mind and the habits or the practices that ought to characterize it. So for me, spending time you know, in scripture is, is terribly important. And um, um, I, I, I think, look at what everybody else in this room is doing. They're coming to the adult education portion of, of their Sunday morning. I mean, goodness gracious, 
this is just amazing to have this many people here for a Sunday school class. <laughs> so, I mean, that's something that you can do. Forming small groups where you have book studies. I'm a part of a theology reading group. And so, you know, forming groups where you read books together and stuff like that. I mean, golly, the, no end is the number of things, you know, you might do to just uh, be cultivating those, those hab good habits of mind. Way in the back. I couldn't agree with you more, and I couldn't, and and I have to c confess to my shame that that this I think this empathetic understanding is an area in which I think I I need to work very very hard as I visit my own mother who is is failing in this way. Um, the this book I mentioned earlier, Dependent Rational Animals. In this book, uh, Alistair McIntyre draws our attention to the fact that. All the major moral theories have made no place for those who are disabled. Though has had made no place for those uh, to flourish who perhaps are handicapped and, and disadvantaged intellectually and physically. In fact, yes, in fact, uh, Bob, it, this May, I believe, is going to be traveling to France, right, in May? there to be a part of the L'Arche community, if you've heard of Jean Vanier, okay. So this, I know, is something that is very, very dear to Bob's heart here and is gonna be uh, uh, a part of his further reflection on the life of virtues <laughs> as well, yeah. Why don't we take Jennifer's last question? Jennifer. Is it an intellectual virtue of listening? Is listening itself an intellectual virtue? I think so. Yeah. This is more than lazy, Jay, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs>